Today we're going to be reading John chapter 3 verses 1 through 18. And that is found on page 1129 of the Pew Bible. Um, It's always a privilege to come up here and read the Word of God, especially a passage that's so well known and so beloved. So I'd like to ask everyone who's able to do so, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless, excuse me, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Word of God. One of the questions that we have been dealing with as we are working our way through the Gospel of John is, how does someone uh, become a Christian? Maybe you've asked that question, or maybe you've been asked that question. And one of the ways that we have attempted to address that is to say that there's been some uh, unhelpful language that has been centered around the answer to that question that has made it more difficult uh, to answer it uh, in a clear, understanding way. What I mean by that is uh, typically we've associated a, a 19th century term that you don't find in the Bible, but you do find in the Christian uh, culture of that time, and that was the idea of conversion. That you're converted to Christianity. Or another one is in the 20th century, uh, a word, a decision was added to the Christian vocabulary. And so even that is uh, not uh, a, a necessarily a biblical, it's not unbiblical, it's just that's not the way the Bible describes how someone becomes a Christian. But those two particular cultural descriptions of how someone becomes a Christian has made it very difficult to say what it means to become a Christian. Because it tends to talk about an event. 
It tends to talk about a moment in someone's life. When, when we talk about, I became a Christian by walking an aisle, I became a Christian by praying a prayer, those that might be descriptive, of an event, they don't really describe how someone becomes a Christian. In fact, we have tried to use biblical words to begin to try to understand what it means how someone becomes a Christian. That is, we're trying to use the biblical word disciple. Disciple was not indicative of the Jewish culture. In fact, it was the Jewish culture that borrowed from the Greek culture this idea of a learner. Uh, someone who followed a teacher. And so when Jews began to bring that in of rabbis, of followers of rabbis, that is, there was a good teacher and you really liked that teacher, you became his follower. What that meant is you learned what he had to teach. And rabbis taught the Old Testament and all of the laws that were associated with the distinction of being a Jew. And so if you were a follower of a rabbi, you were a follower of his teaching. And so when we begin to think about what it means to be a Christian, it is simply someone who follows Jesus. We don't make it really complicated for you to understand. It's simply that simple. But it implies something. It implies that you do not have full understanding of who you are following or what you are following When you begin the following, it presumes that you can literally follow a teacher, this case, Jesus, and what he teaches without fully understanding who he is and what he is teaching. And the Bible, particularly here in John, are loaded with disciples, including his original 12, who were following him without fully understanding who he is and what he came to do. I think that helps us get up to date, particularly for those who haven't been here for the opening chapters of where we are. But to push it a little further, I want you to understand that it's a process. That we understand through process that sometimes takes time, sometimes takes Reasoning and thinking, and sometimes there comes a point where we begin to believe. I am describing what most of us, and what you heard from our uh, new members, describe about their life. There are a few people who could say, like I, that February 24th, 1980, I went from being a non-Christian to a Christian, but most people's experiences aren't like that, yet the church tends to push people to an event. Sometimes it's for assurance. Sometimes it's just so that on our part, we know uh, that you're a Christian, that you're able to discern a point in time where you become a Christian. And when reality is, most of our children, most uh, uh, adults experience a whole different uh, reality of how they came to a full understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that's through a process, which implies that the church that is involved in the mission of telling people about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that we are a place, a culture, where people are at different stages of understanding, even right here, right now. 
that there are some people in the room who for over a long period of time have come to a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. But it also implies in a room of this size, there are some people who are not yet there. That is a full understanding. They're somewhere between I don't understand and I fully understand. And that, my friends, implies that that is okay. If you're a person in this room and you don't fully understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that's okay and it's okay with us. In fact, we want to celebrate and encourage you to keep processing. Don't stop in order to make us feel better by coming up with a point in time where you have made a decision. If you never know when you decided... That is no concern of ours. That's between you and the Lord. What we're concerned with is providing you a context in which you can process and it be okay. No matter where you are in that process. But it also implies that we're okay with a little ambiguity. That is not knowing. That is, we're okay with you not exactly where we want you to be right now at this point in time. That there's a little ambiguity in our church. That might not make everyone feel comfortable, but that's what's required if you're going to have people in process. And it also implies that we're going to allow a certain level of messiness upon the people As they process. That is, we're not going to require you a certain level of conformity before you believe. Which brings us to the story this morning of Nicodemus. John is recounting how Nicodemus moves through a process. It's way more than what we have in here in chapter 3. We're going to eventually go to chapter 7 and chapter 19 to see the same guy working through this process. And I say just up front, this passage teaches us something about our God, that he has a big love, love bigger than we tend to think because he's also okay with process. He invented it. And it tells us something about how to become a Christian. That it is a process. And Jesus calls this being born again. Many have reinterpreted that concept, being born again, to simply mean some emotional, religious experience. Others have made it synonymous synonymous with what it means to be conservative, dogmatic, or narrow-minded. But ultimately, we need to go back and ask, what did Jesus mean in this context where he used the concept born again? So let's take a minute and look at the story and then what the story implies. First, who is Nicodemus? Verse 1 tells us that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And that means that Nicodemus is someone who takes his faith seriously. That means he's one of the serious people in Israel about his faith. 
about his Judaism, about his relationship with God and with the community. He's very serious. And so he's not coming to play games with Jesus. He's not trying to trap him. He's not trying to stump the teacher. He's got some real questions. He's got two. And he wants Jesus to address these two fundamental questions about what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. He's heard some things. That's what chapter two is all about. He's heard some things and he's in the dark of night, or at least after dark, he's come to Jesus with these two questions. We also learn in verse one that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. We know that because he says he's the ruler of the Jews. The ruler of the Jews is a group of 70 men made up of both laity, that is non-professional religious people and professional religious people called the clergy. And there are 70 of them. They're elected uh, uh, to serve as kind of a hybrid Supreme Court and Congress at the same time. That is, the, the Sanhedrin has complete authority for every Jew who lives everywhere in the world. Not just in Jerusalem, not just in Israel, but everywhere there's a Jew, they're under the authority of these 70 men. And Nicodemus is one of the 70. We know from verse 10 that Jesus recognizes him as a teacher of the people, the teacher of the law, which makes him a scholar. So he's not just serious about his faith. He's got a pretty good level of knowledge about the faith, or at least the scriptures. We're going to know in chapter 19, he comes from a fairly wealthy family. We know he's wealthy because he buys these spices that are used in the burial of human beings, and he brings enough that would be a small fortune. That is, the average person, one, doesn't get buried in these caves, and then two, the average person can't afford these spices to lessen the smell of human flesh decay after someone has died. All right, verse 2 tells us that Nicodemus, at night, in the evening, somewhere... In Jerusalem, this perplexed man, he moves through uh, the old back streets of Jerusalem to speak with the new young rabbi who's come to town uh, in chapter 2 with some face-to-face questions about who Jesus is and what Jesus is teaching specifically regarding to what it means to be one of his followers. Jesus uses first the metaphor, born again. You see that in verse 3? It is a term, it is a concept that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. That is, born again was not a concept that Jesus came up with. It is a concept that the rabbis would have used in describing someone who comes to faith in Judaism out of paganism. They already used this Formula to describe what it meant to be a follower of Yahweh. In fact, a rabbinical saying of the time, which Jesus would have known, and so would have Nicodemus, it goes like this. A proselyte, that is someone who's not a Jew, who becomes a Jew, is like a newborn child born again. What he means by that, And it's written in a lot of the rabbinical works is that when you become a Jew, when you weren't a Jew, everything is new 
and the way in which you used to think under paganism is gone, is replaced. And so, what is being described here by Jesus is not an identity so much, born-again Christian, a qualifier for Christian, as much as a description of the effects of being a Christian. Jesus is not so much identifying a Christian as he is describing what it means to be a Christian. I think that's important for us because we have tended to think of born again as synonymous with Christian or at least a qualifier of Christian. And that's not how Jesus uses this concept. And it's certainly not the context the Jews would have understood the idea of being born again. It's describing that when you become a Christian, the change is so vast, the change is so big, it is like being new. The old ways in which you used to think under the old ways of religion that you had or no religion at all has gone away and has been replaced by a new way of thinking. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus has two questions of Jesus, and he's going to bring the first one here in verse 4. And I believe if we listen to the question, it reveals Nicodemus's long desire of his heart. That is, there are a number of desires that every human being has. We, we want to be loved. We long to love and be loved. We long to know and to be known. We long to, to, uh, to have meaning and purpose to our lives. Lots of people give up living because they see no purpose or meaning to their life. So they long for it. Well, there's one more longing that I think Nicodemus in his question is asking that Jesus is going to address. And that is this longing to last. We want to last. And God put that longing there. Because you're an eternal being. This life is not all that there is. And because this is not all that there is, we long to know what the rest of it's going to be like. We want to know that it matters. And so here we have Nicodemus asking this question in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? He's asking Jesus, how do you become a Christian? You've been talking about this idea that if you become a Christian, you get eternal life. How does that happen? How does that work? And verse 5 gives Jesus' answer to that question. And he says, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit. What is Jesus implying here? And that is this. That this becoming a Christian, this process, even though you're involved, it is a work of God in you not a work of man for God. That's the reason he goes in verses uh, 6 through 8 and he begins to talk about this work. And he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. He says, if you're born of flesh, we all know how that works. You come from your mom and your dad. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That is, if you become a Christian, 
It's not because your mom and dad were Christians. It's because of the work of the Spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. Don't marvel. That's what we marvel at in the 21st century. Are you a born again Christian? The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound. That is, you, you can get its effects. This new thinking. This new way of living. But you do not where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see what he's saying here? He's implying it's a work of God in you. Not your work. This is what... Paul was getting at in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. He doesn't use the idea of born again, but he's still talking about the same thing. Your new way of thinking is so new, so radically different than the old way of thinking. The way to talk about it is that you're new, a new creation. It doesn't mean that you got new DNA or you re-entered your mother's womb. But the comparison of your old way of thinking is so replaced by this new way of thinking, the only way Paul knows how to describe it is to call you a new creation. Old have passed, new has come. That's what Jesus is is telling Nicodemus to his question, how does someone become a Christian? By the work of the Holy Spirit. And that this work, when it goes in you, you're so different than the old you, that the only way to describe the new you is to call you born again by looking at the effects. It's a new way of living, a new way of thinking. And so Nicodemus has a second question, and it's found in verse 9. He's not really sure about the first one, and so the second one is connected. If the Spirit does this work, how can this be? How does it work? And Jesus' response in verse 10 is a little off-putting. How do you not know? You are a teacher of the people of God. You know the Old Testament. You're a teacher. How do you not know how this works? Can you imagine this? This is a, a tremendous, humbling experience for Nicodemus. He is one of the 70. He's not just a a teacher. We're not sure whether he's lay or professional. But he's a member of the 70. So he's one of the inner workings. It's like one of the Supreme Court justices asking you an opinion on a decision that's coming before his court. How do you not know? That's Jesus' response. You have the entire Old Testament that bears testimony to how someone becomes a Christian. How do you not know? And so what Jesus does is says, I tell you what, I'm just going to give you one example. I'm just going to illustrate this, that how you should have gotten this, but you haven't gotten it. You know the story back in Numbers 21. Now, he wouldn't have said Numbers 21 because they weren't broken up in chapters back then. He said, do you know that story about Moses and a snake on a stick? Yeah. Do you, do you see it? That's all about me. The Son of Man must be lifted up in order that people might be saved. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, you know what happened in in Numbers? You remember when the people rebelled against God and rebelled against Moses and he judged them the way he judged them? He sent snakes 
And this sounds eerie if you don't like snakes. They came in to the camp and started biting the people and some got sick and, and many died. And, and Moses saw this and the people began to repent. So Moses goes back to God and, and repents and, and, and God says, I want you to take a bronze uh, serpent. That is, I want you to make a, a, a likeness of a serpent, stick it on a stick and put it in the middle of the camp and tell them if they will, even if they're bitten, if they will look on the serpent, they'll be saved. And Jesus says, if you would have gotten that, then you wouldn't ask me the question, how does it work? You wouldn't even have asked me the question of who I am. Because he says, that snake on a stick was given so that you would know that I am the Son of Man. That's a code language in uh, biblical times. It is referring to Daniel and it's referring to the Messiah. The Son of God. And so Jesus is saying, the Son of Man, me, has to be lifted up. He's talking about the cross. That every miserable sinner of this world, who by the little bit of faith that they might have, turn personally and specifically toward the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, will have eternal life. It doesn't matter how far you've been from God or how close you've been to the church. If you will look on what Christ has done for you on a cross, you are forgiven. That's how big His love is. Now you have the context for John 3.16 the most beloved and well-known verse in the entire Bible, in the entire world. It's not isolated. It's a summary statement. It's a summary to everything he's been telling Nicodemus about how to become a Christian. And it reveals the big love of God for mankind, for this cosmos. God so loved the world. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Martin Luther will say that's a miniature of the gospel. God so loved. Who loved? God. Loved what? The world. The, The word there in the Greek is cosmos. We want to do what? We want to shrink it down. We want to shrink it down so we can get our arms around it. To understand how big His love is. And when we shrink it down, we miss the beauty and unity and the amazement of the gospel. God so loved the cosmos. You know, they've sent these these amazing little uh, rockets into space. And they've gone around different planets. And now they've gone beyond our particular solar system. And they're finding other planets and and in search of what's going on, do you know that God loves them too? There might be absolutely no life anywhere else, but they bring a glory and a beauty and a unity to his cosmos that reflects him. And God loved them too. God so loved the cosmos. Don't try to shrink it. Embrace its vastness. God so loved the world that he gave. We tend to want to make the summary of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, that God is love. 
That's not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that God so loved, He gave. And He gave His most precious and most valuable asset in heaven. His only Son. I can tell you, you're you're great people. You really are. I can't think of anybody I would rather be with. But I got news for you. I'm not sacrificing my sons and my daughter for you. It isn't going to happen. Be warm and be filled. But God so loved you that He gave His most important relationship for you. That if you believe in Him, and what that simply means is that you personally and specifically trust that what He did on this planet was done in your place so that the Father could forgive you of your sins and that you would stand as accepted and as loved as His Son does. And if you believe that, then it says you have eternal life. And eternal life then is with Him. It's not getting in by the skin of your teeth into heaven. It's being with Him. And you know what's really cool about being with Him? Is all the people that you've ever known who've also in Him are going to be with you, with Him. This is what He's trying to tell Nicodemus. And it's the heart of the gospel. There's a beautiful hymn. It's written by F.M. Lehman. And... He did not write the words. He stole the words off the wall of an insane asylum. He wrote the music, but he did not write the words. And this poem was etched in the wall of a patient who had passed away. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bow down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were ever stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Is that how you feel about The love of God for you. Love of God for our world. The love of God for your neighbor who thinks very differently than you. Who lives very differently than you. So it brings me back to the beginning. I told you this is a process. And we have to understand that this comes in people in stages. Typically not all at once. And that was true for Nicodemus. Nicodemus received this. In stages, he started by listening to Jesus in Jerusalem at the temple. And then by night, he came with his questions. He began to investigate the claims of Christ. And at first, Jesus is a good teacher and a miracle worker. But then he eventually becomes the Savior to Nicodemus. How do we know that? We don't know exactly what happened when he leaves here. We know that he's not following Jesus, at least physically. He might have been following from a distance. Or he just might have suspended the following. But we do know something that happens to Nicodemus in chapter 7. If you go to chapter 7, verses 45 through 52, Nicodemus reappears in this story. And this is not by an accident because John's already told you, I could have wrote everything. 
but I only wrote these things in order that you might believe. And there's a debate going on between the chief priests and the Pharisees in which Nicodemus would have been present because he's one of the Pharisees of the 70. And they're debating who Jesus is and why Jesus came, the movement. And one of the Pharisees asked this question in front of Nicodemus. And you have to hear the end of it to know the implication. He says, no one in authority, no Pharisee believes in him. Do they? Nicodemus is standing there. And Nicodemus could have answered one way or another. Yes, I believe or no, I don't believe. But Nicodemus doesn't give an answer at all to that question. Nicodemus' faith remains ambiguous to the reader. But I think it's on purpose. It's unclear. He's undecided, at least as far as we know. Nicodemus shows up one more time in John's Gospel, chapter 19. Already told you, it's verse 38 through 42. Jesus has been crucified, and the the way it worked was you left a criminal on the cross until his body began to decay for weeks so that everybody might see that this is not the way you want to go as a warning to everyone. But Jesus, because he died on the day before Passover, they took his body down so it wouldn't be an offense to the worship that was going to go on in the temple. And so Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and says, can I have his body? Do I, can, can you entrust it to me to bury him? And, and he agrees and he puts him in his own tomb. The way that works is that there's holes in this thing. Because this decay, the smell has to escape. And so every day, a group of people come to keep preparing new wrappings and, and spices to keep the smell from evading the, the countryside of the decaying flesh. And that falls to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the one who went out and spent a small fortune on spices and brought them to be used on the body of Jesus. We don't know much. It's ambiguous on purpose. But I want you to know this is going to be the closest you and I will ever get to hearing Nicodemus' public profession of faith. Because everyone would have known that he bought the spices for Jesus. Everyone would have known that this member of the Sanhedrin, this ruler of the Jews, who should have just turned his back on Jesus, did not. He came and he bought the spices. It was this process for Nicodemus because for most of us, understanding who Jesus is and what he has done for us is a process. It's a series of stages for us, which has implications for EP. Let me give you one for those of you who are in the room who don't fully understand, or maybe you don't understand at all. The implication for you is to keep coming, keep asking, keep searching, keep investigating, keep wondering, keep understanding. This room is full of people who will help you understand. I know them. They care so much for you and for their Savior. They're willing to walk with you to understand. Even if that takes years. And your ambiguity of where you stand is okay. Okay, now the other side. For those of you who go here, there's an implication for you. And that is you have to create an environment where it's okay to process Jesus. 
You have to welcome and embrace a culture where there is ambiguity about where people stand with Jesus. That it's okay to to process Jesus in stages. You have to welcome that, encourage that, help that. And part of that is to engage people that you don't know. And it's okay for them to be in process, that, which means that sometimes they are not going to agree with the lifestyle in which you live. That's not important. Yet. What's important is their understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. And to receive that by faith. And, and I can guarantee you the lifestyle will come after. It might come before, but we are not to insist on it. Because when we do that, it builds a wall that they can't even get over. I, I wrestled all week long whether to share this with you. But evidently it won. Do you remember last Sunday when Isaac Vineyard talked about the Women's March last week? And you remember how some of us just... We just got all tight because we felt like he was endorsing the women's march. Because there are things that went on in that march we can't endorse. We can't support. Not because we're mean, just simply because we value all human life. This is supposed to be Life Sunday. If we can't say... To people who disagree with us, we disagree not because I hate you, not because you hold a different position than me, just simply because I love life, all of life. Or maybe it was the vulgarity that bothered you, that was used. Okay. Why are you surprised? Isn't that the way people who don't think like you behave? Not that big a surprise to me. It shouldn't be to you. But let me give you something to consider. There's one thing that almost everyone at the march was for that you and I can be for too. Almost everyone that was there was telling the current government and the head of our government that you cannot treat a woman any old way you want to treat her when you want to. And now it came up because of something he said a couple of times, one to Howard Stern and one to one of these off-mic experiences that came out during the campaign. It's the reason they wore the hats that they wore. We can agree with that. We should never put up with a man treating a woman in that way. Ever. And if that means we can lock arms with people who disagree with us on everything else, we can at least agree on that. The reason this is important is not because of politics. It's not about politics. And that's coming from a political science major. My favorite line in uh, A Fiddler on the Roof, he's asking the girl to marry him. He says, I've got a political question for you. He wants to marry her. And she says, she says this isn't a political question. He says, everything's politics. So just understand, I come from that perspective. But this isn't about politics. This is about mission. If you and I cannot find a bridge by which they can travel and we can travel over, then they are not going to hear the gospel, even if we've got it. If we who know 
the good news of the big love of God. Do not create a bridge between us and those people who don't know that. Then they will never hear it. And so part of the mission is to figure out how can we have something in common with people who live differently than us, who think differently than us, so that they can hear about the big love of Jesus. All right. That's enough. So I did get you back, Isaac. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for the big love that you have for the world. And that you have passed that into the heart of your people. And sometimes we wrestle with that, Father, that, that you really love us and that you love our world that much. But help us to engage in your mission by creating a culture where people can come and process these big claims of Christ and to investigate for themselves. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you might save them more. Let some of them be our family. Let some be our friends. And even strangers. For your glory and for the building of your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.